the serialized version was expanded, reworked, and submitted to more than 20 publishers. Can you predict it? Zero. Each of whom rejected it. Um, One editor prophetically wrote, quote, I might be making the mistake of the decade, but dot, dot, dot. Love it. Welcome, friends, to episode 201 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we discuss the first part of Frank Herbert's 1965 sci-fi novel, Dune. Fear is the mind killer, James. I I finally (laughs) know what that quote is from. (laughs) Right. Uh, What an awesome line that was. Um, and and what a what a cool book. Uh, we have read exactly one, well, not exactly one third, but the 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 book is divided into three parts: book one, book two, book three. We thought that would be a good way to tackle this, so we have read book one within the book of Dune. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like oh, brimming with things to talk about. But you said the line "fear is the mind killer," so I do yeah. want to give a massive shout out to my uh, my physical copy. is so cool. Uh, when you take the sleeve off the hardcover, it's like embossed. Fear is the mind killer is like embossed on the on the front cover. Uh, oh, so yeah? it's like this hidden message. That's cool. Um, Which one super, do you have? Do you have that one? With the, do you have the same one I have? Here's mine. Here, I'll show you. You have a hardcover. Yeah, see? I have a hardcover. Oh, okay. I have the I have the paperback, which I freaking love. Oh my god, I love that one too. Yeah, the with the big blue kind of. Yeah. The covers for this book are so fucking good, man. I just. I am. I love that. Like all the art I've seen, they're com- they're coming out with a um, tie-in edition, which uh, is the one I'm not a big fan of. Because <laughs> I mean, these are so gorgeous, and you're in the tie tie-in editions in general for books. Not usually. I'm so low on them. Like I I don't know if that's you know I'm the movie guy, but like I just so much prefer the original like uh, covers or like a newer. I don't mind the edition, anything like that. You know, as they change. But as soon as you throw the movie poster with like now a major motion picture, I'd find that less interesting. Yeah, I give me the give me the custom art and cover any day. By the way, check out these pages. It's so good. It's like a, it's like a blue on the. It's um, the eyes. The edge. The, the eye edge. color. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's such a cool book, man. I am very jealous of that. I want one now. <laughs> Um, I'm going to read this quote real quick just because I think it's worth worth giving it in full. It is, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. When it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing only I will remain, uh, which is a Benny Gesserit, I think, litany. It's called like the litany against fear. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting quote. Like, what's your take on that quote? I, I mean, I think it's going to continue to have more meaning, but like, yeah, clearly it's like almost a religion, right? It's like this faith based thing. It's almost psychology to me, too, though, here. It's like right. how to handle intense fear. Like, what do you do with it rather than let it sort of paralyze you? And I think we see many people in the book so far, even that like are paralyzed by the moment. And then there are those who like kind of rise above that. But um, even like more physically, like these people seem to have powers through this religion. And like, I think like the the like fearless within this religion are you can kind of see that they are like 
specifically speaking about Paul, like as time goes on, we're starting to see him like sort of have less fear, become more logical at, at times. And like his mind is becoming more powerful. Lots of cool characters here, which we're going to get into. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, we're going to divide it up this way. We're going to give some general thoughts here at the start. Spoiler free. Um, then we will talk about the some of the origins of the novel I read about, some of the behind the scenes kind of writing details, stuff about Frank Herbert. Um, and then we will get into uh, the plot itself. I have it divided into two chunks and we will be doing full spoilers for the first book of the entire novel. Now, we haven't read the whole book, um, so we can't really spoil anything. Um, beyond that, I, I guess I, we should go ahead and talk about what our what our uh, experiences with Dune as a franchise and as a you know because yeah. th- that old movie exists. Have you seen the old movie? What do you remember of it? Yeah, I have seen the old movie and I can remember almost nothing because I I think that I saw this movie around the time, so I can't remember if it was like VHS days or what. But I remember I did have VHS copies of Star Wars that I watched like endlessly. And around that time, I remember seeing a lot of other sci-fi films. I think I saw this at a friend's house for the first time. And I remember not really getting sucked into it. I remember just kind of, it kind of bounced off me. And I, you know, I, I thought, I, you know, in hindsight, I think I liked some of the stuff. But I haven't really touched the material since then. But you, uh, a few years back, they made this, they remade, I guess. There was this Dune board game that they had, they had made a long time ago. And they remade it, reprinted it recently. And so I purchased that around the time that you were coming to visit. And so we we played that and like I, you know, I vaguely remembered some of the the sort of like factions of people and that sort of thing. And the game was a lot of fun. But uh, I while I was doing my reading this week, I, I put, busted the board game out and started going through every and I, you know, understood everything. And I feel like at the characters. Yeah, characters yeah. <laughs> and sort of what their factions powers were and yeah. like what sort of advantages they get. And stuff. If, if you if you don't know, the game is sort of an asymmetrical warfare game that has like a uh, moving storm mechanic and there can be sandworms and you're basically you represent different factions battling for control of arrakis it's a very cool game uh i like it i played it a couple other times my uh my buddy monty has a copy as well up here in oregon so i've played at his house um it's a fun game and, and reading this book makes me want to play it again for sure yeah well and it gives like i, I liked the game outside of the lore but getting yeah. more of the lore and looking i was looking at the map and sort of pointing out areas that i they'd been to in the story so far and it's it's just a lot of fun very cool. And that'll probably even get even deeper as we go. Um, there is also another version, another adaptation of this. It's the uh, Sci-Fi Channel original miniseries. I have not seen that. Called <laughs> Dune. Yeah. My parents watched it. I remember nice. I remember vividly them watching it. And I, I came out and I th- saw parts of it. But it was a, I was a teen at the time. It came out in the year 2000. So, yeah, I was literally probably like 14 or so when that came out. And um, it it was like, yeah, I, I didn't want to be like, I don't know. It just didn't pull me in. And and at the time, I remember walking by and catching it. But it's also around the time where Sci-Fi Channel was doing kind of a lot of B, maybe C, <laughs> you know, tier uh, adaptations and and shows. So I didn't I didn't take it seriously. Um, and like you, I had seen the older version um, when I was very young, and I think it is not. I want to watch it again, which we're going to do on Patreon. We're going to watch that as a bonus episode. We'll release that probably this month. I, I, the plan is to do uh, around the time of the new movie. Um, we're going to watch that old movie again. And, and my suspicion is it is a movie that is just it, not suited for a child, <laughs> which it sounds like both of us were when we watched it. 
Um, it just it was too it was too complex, weird, dark. Um, and I know that the movie is considered kind of a weird. It's a David Lynch uh, film. Like it's it's right. kind of a Which weird one anyway. That, that's that's really why I want to jump back into it is because yeah. like I love David Lynch films. I find them endlessly fascinating. And to get to dive into what he did for for a Dune film is going to be amazing. Um, but also, I watched this documentary years and years ago, which I'm going to revisit after we finish the book. I don't think we'll have any sort of coverage. Maybe I'll talk about it in passing. But it's called Jodorowsky's Dune. And basically, he is like this filmmaker that had this great reputation at the time. And like, he's got a lot of like experimental weird films and had a lot of really interesting takes and a lot of the materials. He had like sketches done and he had all these things that were done to um, prep for the film and he was going to create it. And it became this like legend around Dune, I believe. Yeah. So friend of the podcast, Remy Nakamura, uh, I was over at his place like, a couple weeks ago and we were talking about Dune. And um, he mentioned uh, Jadawarski's Dune um, and apparently how one of the legends surrounding this like sketchbook, because he was, I guess he was like kind of an artist too. And so there's all yeah, this. He was like a comic book stuff. artist. He's done literally everything un- under the umbrella of art. It's so there's amazing. all this like sci-fi concept stuff, right? In this movie that never ended up getting made. It's, its budget was ballooning and, and it, it just right. didn't end up happening. This was in the 70s. Um, but apparently this sketchbook in, in Jodorowsky's Dune, if I'm saying that name correctly, um, is incredibly influential or it is sort of rumored to be incredibly influential for films like Blade Runner yes. and Alien. That's why I'm familiar with like it. Ridley Scott this- apparently was was greatly influenced by it, which became, of course, those became incredibly influential films um, for like the look of sci-fi in, in Western films, right? So thinking back that this could all tie back to this potential adaptation that never got made. That stuff will, I'll definitely be curious to look more into as we, we're just kind of getting started with Dune. We're going to be doing this for a month. So I'm not trying to get into everything that can possibly be getting into. Um, we're focusing mo- mostly on the book here. And um, I have a lot to talk about for why this book is so important. But before we do, what are your initial impressions of reading Dune? What does it what does it remind you of? Does it remind you of anything else you've read? How does it stack up to because I know this is a project we've been thinking about covering for a long time. Yeah. How does it stack up now that you're you're actually reading it? It's a novel and a story that like I am so drawn to and I've like immediately been hooked and I know that there is like I've heard people talk about how it's tough to get into with all the crazy names and the locations and it dumps a lot on you but like I think I felt a little bit of that right away and it, and it almost immediately went away. Yeah. And I started really getting sucked we've in. Been, we've been training for that with all our epic fantasy we read, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I, I got sucked in and I'm, I'm so enjoying the story. I'm having a great time. And I think that I'm also able to put it in context of like when it was made, what it, what it influenced and everything like that and appreciate it in that sense because uh, of course it's similar to things like Star Wars and it feels similar to... Um, like John Carter. I was getting some John Carter vibes, of course, because like Princess of Mars is probably influential towards this or something. Yeah, and I think that's safe to say, yeah. And and uh those those were standing out a lot to me. But then even like the political concepts and things that are going on reminds me of like the the art the type of story of something like Game of Thrones where it's like very much about yeah the the vying for power in a, in an area and it's not just necessarily like running around in the in the dunes from sandworms right and i think george r r martin would say well i you know was inspired by the real world war of roses and the houses and all this stuff but 
I totally agree. I think there's some inspiration coming from Dune in Game of Thrones. Um, it, it just was giving me those vibes. It's such a monumental piece of fiction in the genre. Um, it's considered the most popular sci-fi novel of all time. I don't know if you know that. I can see it. I, I genuinely feel like it's living up to the hype so far. Like I, I'm really, really drawn in. The world's incredible. Um, it's really well detailed. Very interesting. It's written in 1965, so there's moments of like sort of when you read a sci-fi story that's older like that, or you know that's not that old relatively. But uh, when you read a story like that, there'll be things where it's like, oh yeah, and then they had coffee, and then they did something like normal next to the fact that like, and then they got on you know this crazy flying vessel and did did all of these like sci-fi things. So it's funny to to, to see some of that, but ultimately it's all really hang- holding up for me so far. Yeah. Yeah, I actually have been pretty impressed with how well it holds up and how a lot of the tech, um, because there is a really fascinating intersection between what I would classify as hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. This novel is sort of famous for being soft sci-fi, but it's not completely. And there's a lot of hard sci-fi concepts. Um, It's an ecological novel. It's a lot about the ecology of this desert planet, and a lot of the science behind that feels very hard to me. It feels well-researched and grounded, Um, and then you take that and you start introducing, like, visions and religion and um, almost magic at times, Um, and it becomes very uh, space opera, reminiscent of something like Star Wars, which came after, so you know, the other way around, this probably was influential for something like Star Wars. Um, and then all of that also comes back to, it, it is it tonally more similar to something like a Game of Thrones. Like this feels very dark and serious and, you know, it's it's very backstabbing and um, violent at times um, and uh, very intricate, right? And all of that feels very grand yeah i guess we should be saying a song of ice and fire by the way right we should we're, we're kind of being bad yeah. book fans right yeah, now yeah a song true. of ice and fire yeah yeah forget forget about the show we're talking about the books i did want to ask you actually about like this sort of ecological look at this planet too because it yeah. feels like there's a statement being made here that we haven't seen the full realization of yet yeah but i'm wondering if you know herbert's trying to comment on the way that humans can interact with a planet and change it for the better or for the worse and like you know obviously the the spice is very important uh is sort of this resource (laughs) absolutely is the answer to that um not only is the spice um he's even said at later points in time is sort of a metaphor for oil in the middle east um it's also just kind of a metaphor for um scarce resources and people fighting over them right well i couldn't get over how awesome the detail is to have this addictive powerful uh thing that they put in their foods and they consume and how it's able to do that as well as also seemingly give people like knowledge to understand things they otherwise couldn't have yeah and like to have that dual purpose of it being like something that people are addicted to but also something that is like almost necessary to advance society further on and it's intricately tied to the land which is tied to the religion of the fremen which is yeah that's all very fascinating and we haven't even seen like the full exploration of this yet right obviously but um you can see it what he's kind of getting at right here with like imperialism and 
it's fascinating. I'm curious to see what, what the messages are as we explore this more and more. Um, but one of the fascinating things is how feudal this all is, right? It literally, we have like fiefdoms in the, and you have a duke and, and an emperor and, and, and a baron. And that's the stuff that kind of reminds me of Game of Thrones. So um, it's this fascinating intersection of something that's in the far future where humanity is a, capable of interstellar travel. And then you mix it with this very old throwback style of government, um, which creates kind of an epic fantasy feel in the midst of all of this. Like I was I felt very at home with the concept of a, you know, boy born to royalty who is maybe a prophesied hero and maybe has supreme powers because he's got this like, you know, you know, he's got he's like a mint hat. Um, Benny Gesserit, but he's also like the first boy Benny Gesserit who's able to do this sort of stuff, and like so he's he's all this like special stuff wrapped into one. And he's so he's very prototypical in that way for what would be in a fantasy novel. Yet you're seeing it in a in a mix of hard and soft sci-fi, um, and you're clearly setting up a massive epic story. And we could talk about all the ways in which he does that. That is, I think, clever. And because of that, like I I can see the appeal of this book. I am finding it really engaging. And for a book that was written in 1965, it is reading fantastically well to me. I, I am loving it. Yeah. Um, I do want to give a shout out to the audio book. Um, I have a physical copy, which I have been reading off and on. But the audiobook version of this that I have, at least, is spectacular. Um, has voice actors. Uh, there's different people for different roles who come in and just do the dialogue. And honestly, that can that can bother me sometimes, but it's really well done in this version. It's really well done, and there's also like a little bit of ambient music and sound yeah. and stuff. It, it it it's almost like an adaptation in and of itself. But I was following along to make sure because I was like, I wonder if they're cutting a lot out. And I was following along, and it's word for word from everything I saw. Um, so it's you know it's the book. It's just being performed in a way that is I think really next level. And um, with the one slight criticism I would have that at one point the Duke for whatever reason the guy who like does the voice of the Duke was just gone for like an entire chunk of uh, of the story where the Duke was doing important stuff and it was just the narrator doing like a Duke voice which was fine but I had gotten so I, I was struck by how great the Duke's voice was like the guy who was performing that the role that his absence was really glaring. And it made me wonder, like, what happened? Why wasn't he there that day? Like, why wasn't he for this part? Very that odd. actually reminds me like um, I, I went and watched the trailer again uh, after after I finished this section. Because <laughs> you know who and some I, of the characters are now. <laughs> yeah. And I it, like really I really like thought it was awesome. I, I found it, you know, obviously I kind of can see what's going on in some. I think they didn't give much away, honestly, beyond yeah. what we've read here. And um, I thought that was really cool to see to see all the characters that they've chosen. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Absolutely. Anyway, shout out to the uh, to the audio book. It is very good. Um, so yeah, my, my general thoughts on this, just like, I'm really into it. I'm enjoying it. Excited to get to the, the middle and end chunk of it. Um, I can see why this is so well regarded. Um, I just as a brief aside, am writing a sci-fi novel myself that is a blend of hard and soft sci-fi. So I just think this is a very good book for me to be reading right now. Um, as I'm, as I'm yeah. still kind of finalizing my novel because he's doing it masterfully and the way he blends those two together um, I think is brilliant. And so there's a lot of great lessons to be learned here. And so just as a student of writing, I'm, I'm excited to continue to read this. 
Awesome. Yeah, I love that the way that the hard sci-fi can sort of ground the whole story and make it feel so real, like we're there. And yeah, it's just so much fun. Very cool. Okay, so uh, if you're ready, I think let's talk about Frank Herbert, the person, um, and then we can move into the plot. Yeah, let's do it. So Franklin Patrick Herbert Jr. was born in 1920 and died in 1986 at the age of 65. Uh, He was an American science fiction author best known for his 1965 novel Dune and its five sequels. Though he became famous for his novels, he also wrote short stories and worked as a newspaper journalist, photographer, book reviewer, ecological consultant, and lecturer. So I I read through a good bit of his life story. Basically, he grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I think he was born in Tacoma. He ended up joining, I think it was the Navy, um, where he was a photographer uh, during World War II for a little bit, I think just for a year. And then he came back and he was living in Oregon. He became a writer for a newspaper in Portland, Oregon. He would publish a novel called The Dragon in the Sea in 1957, um, which was actually pretty well regarded. And it, it talked about, I was reading about it, it talked about these these um, submarines. It was kind of a psychological thriller with a blend of sci-fi. These submarines went to uh, the Middle East, I guess, and were like getting oil and bringing it back. And he described them as dragging bags of oil behind the submarines. And apparently a real world invention was made after this book came out. Where they were like, that's a good idea, and they like to tried it. <laughs> so I don't know how successful wow. it was. I didn't get a chance to like fully research it, but it's the, that's the kind of thing that's cool. It's like if you're coming up with an idea, and people who like know what they're doing are like, that's kind of a good idea. Let's try that. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, I feel like we see that in sci-fi sometimes too, right? Like, I feel yeah. like a lot of Philip K. Dick stuff has kind of been eventually created. Well, and you look at like how many inventions people have come up with because they basically want to make some Star Trek thing they saw real. Uh, right. Yeah, sci-fi. That's one of the really cool things about sci-fi that is like a massive topic, um, but it's something that is very fun, and we're seeing it here, right? Um, so, so then in 1957, um, he's working in this ma- at this newspaper. He gets hired to travel to Florence, Oregon, um, to study the Oregon Dunes. Uh, while he was there, the Department of Agriculture was attempting to use something called poverty grasses to stabilize the sand dunes. Because the sand dunes were moving around in the wind and were threatening the, um, the environment in the area. So Herbert claimed in a letter to his literary agent that the moving dunes could, quote, swallow cities whole, lakes, rivers, and highways. Herbert's article on the dunes was called, quote, They Stopped the Moving Sands, but was never completed and only published decades later in a book called The Road to Dune. Um, but its research sparked Herbert's interest in ecology and deserts. So this is that sorry seed we like to talk about so much. Um, he was inspired by these Oregon dunes. Um, and I was looking them up. And I'm like, where are these things? Um, they are a little further south on the Oregon coast than I have been been yet. I've been, I think as south as like Newport, if I'm remembering correctly, the name of the town I've been to. Um, maybe, a little bit, maybe a little bit more south than that. But this is like another 30, 45 minutes south of that, I think, from what I was seeing, maybe an hour um so it's cool because i would i would love to go to it it might be a bit far from portland um but 
very fun. It's cool that it's like a real place and that it was that it was sort of inspired in Oregon. I had no idea of this. This is a, a fun behind the scenes stuff. I love that. That's cool. I actually um, I've been to a few like national parks and areas that had like massive dunes. Like I've been to White Sands. That's in New Mexico. It's a mm-hmm. national park. Being there is like wild when you get in the dunes they make you feel very small and Mm -hmm. i just like you think about being trapped out in an area like that with looming like threats and uh yeah imagining sand sandworms underneath your feet we might have to make a pilgrimage out to the to the dunes like we did to the the overlook hotel yeah i mean next time you come visit maybe we'll head out to the dunes um (laughs) i'm gonna be visiting florida though sooner than that um which we can talk about later but um so beside just the inspiration of the dunes He was also really interested in the idea of superhero mystique and messiahs. He believed that feudalism was a natural condition that humans fell into, where some led and others gave up responsibility of making decisions and just followed orders. He found that desert environments have historically given birth to several major religions with messianic impulses. He decided to join his interests together so he could play religious and ecological ideas against each other. In addition, he was influenced by the story of T.E. Lawrence and the messianic overtones in Lawrence's involvement in the Arab Revolt, uh, which, by the way, is the inspiration for Lawrence of Arabia. I was about to ask that, yeah. Um, In an early version of Dune, the hero was actually very similar to Lawrence of Arabia, but Herbert decided that the plot was too straightforward and added more layers to the story. Um, Another significant source of inspiration for Dune was Herbert's experiences with psilocybin and his hobby of cultivating mushrooms. So this is also the 60s. We talked about with uh, with um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? And and experiments with psilocybin. Um, So, yeah, that's really fascinating. So you get all this this coming together of multiple things, right? Like, obviously, study of history, thinking about ecological uh impacts of things thinking about the dunes and then (laughs) you know uh i guess i guess the psilocybin maybe maybe he's that's one of the inspirations for the way that the um spice opens your mind and makes you see things and connections that you don't otherwise see so like i can see how maybe that led into that right totally yeah yeah so that's really fascinating um he would spend the next five years researching writing and revising He then published a three-part serial called Dune World in Analog magazine from December 1963 to February 1964. The serial was accompanied by several illustrations that were not published again, which is interesting. I wonder if they're rare uh, these days. Um, After an interval of a year, he published the much slower-paced five-part The Prophet of Dune in the January to uh, May 1965 issues. The first serial became Book One, Dune, in the final published Dune novel, and the second serial was divided into Book Two, Moadib, and Book Three, The Prophet. So we read, what we just read was eventually made into book one of the book we just read right like that that is the original serial that ran in analog what we just read yeah now it's it, it, it was it was changed a little bit when it became a novel but similar right at least the serialized version was expanded reworked and submitted to more than 20 publishers can you predict it zero each of whom rejected it um yeah. one editor prophetically wrote quote i might be making the mistake of the decade but dot 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 love it Dune was finally accepted and published in 1965 by Chilton Books, a printing house better known for publishing auto repair manuals. 
Wow. I just think that's that's pretty funny. That's so crazy. I think I had heard that somewhere. Yeah, right. That's pretty pretty amazing, right? The book itself was not an immediate commercial success. Um, it was critically loved. Um, it was nominated for some awards. Um, and then he would go on to publish more novels later, um, start building his brand. It was sort of a, uh, you know, like a people liked it, but it wasn't a massive audience at first. Um, but it wasn't really until um, the 1980s adaptation came out before it really took off. Um, and became became much more popular. Um, he would die in 1986, only two years after that movie came out. So he saw like true fame for this series t- only towards the end of his life. Um, he died from a pulmonary embolism after getting treatment for cancer. Um, so tr- you know, tragically, pretty young, honestly. Yeah. Um, and and really, just as he was starting to see major success for this, his son would go on to co-author. Um, several additional Dune novels in its series because there was a lot of apparently um, open threads that he hadn't quite wrapped up. And so he went on to, to co-author this with author Kevin J. Anderson, um, w- which was using notes left behind by Frank Herbert and discovered uh, a decade after his death or so. The additional books have continued to come out in recent years. Um, they wrote three prequel trilogies, Prelude to Dune, Legends of Dune, and The Great Schools of Dune, exploring the history of Dune universe in the original novel. Um, so there's just tons of this like extended universe Dune stuff out there that if you really want to dig into, you can get well, well lost in, it sounds like. It's, it's an amazing series, and it's been, con- it's been considered the epic example of literary world building in science fiction. Um, has been favorably compared to Lord of the Rings as sort of the Lord of the Rings of sci-fi. So, you know, it didn't have a success early, like massive success early. And then after the film, is that when people started like sort of revisiting and realizing? Because it's kind of known as the the example. It was critically acclaimed and it won some awards and it was read. It wasn't like it wasn't doing okay. It did pretty well. But um, yeah, it seems like it didn't become mainstream until the film the status that it has now is like almost untouchable like you said it's like sort of compared to things like lord of the rings right um it's it's unfortunate that he didn't see a lot of that that success and that that huge wave so before he died he also wrote a very positive review of terry brooks's the sort of shannara book um and apparently this was uh kind of a big springboard for terry brooks as an author and he sort of launched his career um, in the way that like really well-known authors um, positively reviewing other authors can sometimes do. Um, and Terry Brooks is an author I have not read, but I am very familiar with. I, I know that he has very prolific and he, he wrote a lot of those uh, Shannara books and, and then it also got an adaptation. So just interesting to see the the effects, right? And the, the, the lineage of, of different authors and how they connect to one another and the genre and then of course this is just a massive series that is incredibly influential just across i mean we talk about game of thrones and song of ice and fire because that's like something we've both read but i'm sure if you're more well read in in both sci-fi and fantasy you could probably tie it to a dozens of other series right like it's, it's everywhere oh i'm sure absolutely yeah and a lot of the time, like we try to, I think we try to tie it to things we've covered on the podcast right. too. But yeah, I'm sure that there's plenty of these. I'm sure that it spreads very wide. The sh- shadow looms large in the <laughs> in the sci-fi yeah. community, which is why it's so cool that we're getting to cover this now. Like I, I don't know, man. It's like we've we've had a few of these moments this year, you know, like covering Margaret Atwood or covering Agatha Christie, where it's like big names that I've always heard, but I do- I didn't have the direct 
um, experience of reading and covering their work. Um, so I'm just really enjoying finally getting to read Frank Herbert, know what all the fuss is about, and yeah. feel like I can now participate in this conversation. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, this is the, like I mentioned in our 200th episode when we were talking about this being our next project. This is something that's been on the horizon literally our entire podcast, seemingly. Seems like it, it was man. like Blade Runner 2049 came out early on in the podcast and then basically after that we knew that dune was was going to be denny villeneuve's next project yeah. and then you know over the over the what four years now it's been it's been just like people non-stop telling me that like if i i can't just i can't believe you haven't read dune yeah. and everything so now that we finally get to cover it it's just like a dream this is it feels like christmas you know for us <laughs> to be able to cover something like so this. so exciting all right um so i'm going to read i have the plot divided into two hefty chunks um, I'm going to read the first one now. So if you're truly want to avoid all spoilers, I guess check out now. Um, just know that we're enjoying it. And if you're waiting for us to sign off on it, um, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm signing off on this thing. I think it's well worth reading. Agreed. Okay. I'm going to probably butcher some of these fictional names. Um, I have heard the audiobook version, but I have never tried to say them myself. Um, so we'll see how they come out. Um, also, you know, they're a little odd, some of them, so bear with me. So Duke Leto Atreides of House Atreides, ruler of the ocean planet Kaladin, is assigned by the Pad- Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV to serve as a fief ruler of the planet Arrakis. Although Arrakis is a harsh and inhospitable desert planet, it is of enormous importance because it is the only planetary source of melange, or spice, a priceless and exclusive substance that extends human youth, vitality, and lifespan, the official reason for its high demand in the Empire. More significantly, it is through the consumption of spice that the guild navigators are able to obtain their extraordinary mental capabilities. Shaddam sees House Atreides as a potential future rival and threat, and conspires with House Harkonnen, currently in charge of spice harvesting on Arrakis and long-standing enemies of House Atreides, to destroy Leto and his family after their arrival. Leto is aware his assignment is a trap of some kind, but cannot refuse. Leto's concubine, Lady Jessica, is an acolyte of the Bene Gesserit, a exclusively female group that pursues mysterious political aims and wields seemingly superhuman physical and mental abilities. Though Jessica was instructed by the Bene Gesserit to bear a daughter as part of their breeding program, out of love for Leto, she bore a son, Paul. From a young age, Paul has been trained in warfare by Leto's aides, the elite soldiers Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck, and the Mintat Thufir Hawat, has prepared him for becoming a cunning political maneuverer. Jessica has also trained Paul in what Bene Gesserit discipline she can, his prophetic dreams interest Jessica's superior, the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohame. She subjects Paul to the Gom Jabbar, a deadly test which causes blinding pain as part of an assessment of the subject's humanity. To her surprise, Paul manages to pass despite being exposed to more pain than any others before him. Okay, so let's stop there. We just piled a bunch of names onto you. <laughs> yeah, uh, as Frank Herbert did. Bun- yeah, 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 yeah. It's a lot. Uh, it's a lot. Um, so let's just let's just react to a lot of these characters. Let's 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 back up. Um, where where do we start in this book? I guess where do you want to start? Yeah, I, I do want to jump in real quick and say 
with all these characters, I think Herbert did something really smart, which was he, although it's kind of Paul's story, he jumps into other characters' point of views. Yes. Sort of on a whim. Yeah. Like out of nowhere. These days, you would call that head hopping. Um, it was much more the style of the time. Uh, we've seen it in some of the like Stephen King books we've read and some of the older books mm-hmm. we've read. Um, certain authors do it very well. I think Herbert does it well here to where you're not confused about whose thoughts you're getting, which is often the danger. No, yeah, it's it's clear, but it's also like uh, it's just the shift is so is so sudden sometimes. It's kind of surprising, right? Yeah. Well, we're not these days. We don't you just don't see it as much. Yeah. And, but I think it is effective because there's so many characters mm. and we, we get this sort of I, the story's told in an interesting way, too, because there is like an epistolary nature to it. We're, we're not surprised by a lot of the events so far that we've gotten. We've sort of had like prophecies giving them to us or there's like these little four words at the beginning of yeah, each chapter. So you're talking about these epigraphs that appear at the start of each chapter. Um, which is really fascinating because this is the kind of stuff there's certain things in this novel that I was seeing and I'm going like there there's an urge to do this in novels that people write today. I've had the urge to do this sort of stuff. Um it's being done well here. But one of the things that these epigraphs do is they provide a certain context for what's going to happen. They sometimes foreshadow big events. Like they mention the death of the Duke well before the Duke ever happens, right? Or before that ever happens. Like they mention the traitor and this doctor um, before we even really know much about him. Um, So there's a lot of this interesting foreshadowing, but then it's also providing just like uh, uh, texture to the world. You get like songs, you get stuff. But then it's also a distant, it's like some point in the future looking back at these times in which it, now it's almost legendary, which makes it feel like we're getting very big, important, universe-altering um, things happening, and it's being told as if it's it's like legend. And I don't know. I think that's really cool. It's like we're getting the real story of what is now legend is kind of the feel that you get from it. Um, and I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So the other, the, to tie that back to what we were talking about with all these characters... He, I, I think that jumping into somebody else's head, getting their motivation gives us as the reader, obviously their motivation and what they're planning on doing. And in some ways it's spoiling things for us along the way, but it keeps you understanding what's happening. And I appreciated that, especially early on, like with all these characters to introduce. Um, and it's not taking away. It's not like it doesn't feel like spoilers to me because like it's it adds tension to certain scenes because you don't know what exactly how exactly they're going to portray them. Yeah, he's deliberately doing it in the way that foreshadowing when done well can can actually be um, an enticement to continue. Right. Like it creates a curiosity gap where you're like, well, how does how does this go down? And you want to find out how things happen, even though you kind of know certain you could call them spoilers for the plot, but it's given to you directly and deliberately. So it's not really a spoiler because that's the way the author wants you to, to find this information. Yeah. I will be really curious to see in in the film, if they do any of this or if they play it more, I, I assume they won't. I, I think they'll, they probably, won't. yeah, cause I don't think they will quite as much, but in film. I'll also be interested to see if Herbert continues to do it quite as much as he did in this early part here. Cause I yeah. think we've really, this was the establishing first book here as like, i think we're gonna get it throughout the entire book that's just my you like, do yeah i don't think it'll drop okay but we'll see how it goes i just don't know if he'll he'll be like as heavy-handed with mm. the details that he's giving before chapters and things like that okay that's fair yeah I, I don't know um okay so let's talk about the atreides house right we get uh we get the father leto we get paul and we get lady jessica who is not actually 
his wife, the Duke's wife. Well, at the end of this, we also figure out what her house actually is. Yeah, yeah, and she's a Bene Gesserit. And yeah, we find out some more about her parentage, which we'll get into in part two, maybe. So let's hold off on that. So just I- early introductions to these characters. Um, yeah, you have this like old woman come in with a mysterious box and then Paul puts his hand into it and it starts, you know, torturing him essentially. And the whole, he's being tested and he doesn't have to pull his hand out. And I, this is when I realized like a big part of this book is going to be psychological. Um, we get this, this sort of, um, litany against fear. This is when it first appears. And, um, I got the sense that, you know, with, with the Mentats and the Benny Gesserit and a lot of their powers seem caught up in their ability to read people and they have this sight where they can tell very minute things and, and, and suss out hidden meaning. Um, and you're in, and you're in a setting where you're looking at people trying to decide whether or not they've, um, betrayed you and they're actually, you know, working for somebody else. Um, it's really fascinating. And I liked that it was, um, sort of taking something that people, we can all do to an extent and cranking it up to a level where it almost feels supernatural. Like, they're just really perceptive. Um, but what what results from that that I love is all those sections that are sort of from their point of view. It's like Paul's point of view, Je- Jessica's point of view, and even to a lesser extent, the Duke's point of view. You're having really perceptive characters who seem very intelligent and who are aware that they're in danger, still getting caught up in a web, right? And... I, I, it feels very well plotted and well written for me to buy everything that happens, even when you've so thoroughly established that these characters are extremely clever and perceptive to where they don't actually see it coming. Um, so it's very well executed, and I, I love all that stuff going on here early. Yeah, and so I wanted to jump back to the box really quickly just because you reminded me, you know, you asked me early on about the fear thing, and you sort of triggered something that I wanted to talk about. And this is the idea that the reverend mother who who shows up starts asking and so does jessica to an extent about like whether paul is a human or an animal yeah and then that goes and then they start to co- sort of explain a little bit in this idea about animal instinct and like an animal has fear and can't sort of it has to act on that instinct and then humans have this capability to address that fear think about it and then push past it mm-hmm. and deal with that regardless of that so you know i think that 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 quote's probably speaking about that and in, in a sense as well as like this higher form of being yeah, that I can agree. decide to you know face these yeah. fears or face the uh and that and, and like the mind killer fear being the mind killer yeah. would she, be like, she says like uh, an animal would chew its own arm off to escape the trap whereas a human might feign unconsciousness and instead wait for the captor to come in and kill them or something. So, right. um, I don't know if that's all, you know, necessarily true, but that's the, right. <laughs> that's what's being proposed here. Yeah, I like yeah. it for the story. Yeah. That's the, that's, that's what's being given to us. It's interesting. Uh, and then, yeah, I really, the, uh, the family here, I mean, like they're very charismatic as well. Like you can tell that they, that people want to follow them. They respect them. They, they gain favor quickly with people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Leto really, uh, favors people over land and over power. It seems like he, you know, he's, he's a, he's a nice guy. And he's like, well, he's honorable. And I don't know about you, man, but I was getting strong Stark, Stark vibes. Stark vibes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I really think this book may have been very influential, very influential for Martin. Yeah. And with Paul, I, I was getting very strong, like, 
you know, maybe not quite specifically Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, yeah. but like, how could you not, right? He's not, it's not that he's a farmer boy, but this like chosen one. He's got a very different vibe than Luke Skywalker does though. Cause Luke Skywalker has right. got a very boyish kind of having fun. Like he's got these powers that are almost psychic, um, obviously with the force, but Paul is, he's very calculating he can he mm-hmm. reads people he he can perceive things that he shouldn't be able to perceive he doesn't seem very sort of happy-go-lucky ever um and, and in fact he strikes me as being very serious most of the time um which I, I guess makes him a distinct character in that sense like he's very interesting as a character and i'm enjoying learning about him yeah in the same way that luke sort of like sort of grows his skill and then over time grows his mind mm. this character seems to be doing something very similar where you know along the way they're losing that sense of innocent mm-hmm. uh, innocence and and also like the, the main thing that i wanted to say is that like i think everybody can reading this book can immediately say like that's an every person kind of like you can see yourself in that character yeah i think that's the hope at least relatable that's yeah, yeah relatable. That, that was the goal um th- yeah there are some there are some classic tropes of fantasy um which one or fantasy and sci-fi and i guess any sort of storytelling like this they're you know, viewed as problematic these days for for good reason. Um, one of them that I do want to touch on here, I'll, you know, personally, it didn't mess up my ability to enjoy this story, but uh, the Baron Har- Harkonnen is very tropey. He is obese. He is implied to be homosexual, and he is quite obviously the most villainous character we've met so far. Um, he's also sort of described as being kind of weak. Um, so you're getting a lot of these things coming together that are tr- very tropey th- ways to describe a villain that doesn't, it's like if you don't sort of line up with the, the classic alpha masculine, you know, heteronormative type of, of character, then you're villainous, right? Like you're more likely to be a bad person. Um, and so obviously I don't agree with this. Um, and I don't even know that Frank Herbert was doing it deliberately. Some of this shit, like... You know, we're all prisons of the time we live in and are sort of the people we're around and the way we're raised. And there's all these different factors. So um, maybe I'm being too generous here, but, you know, I, it does seem to me like it could just happen accidentally. He could not even really be thinking about what he was sort of saying by doing making these sort of choices. It's just like he just kind of went with it and then. Who knows how he felt about it years later, because I'm sure once it blew up, he probably heard about it. But um, at the time, did he even realize he was doing it or was it more just like a, something that he, he just came out without him meaning to, like an act, almost accidental? I don't know. It's weird to say accidental because everything that people put in books is deliberate. But that part of it, he might not have fully thought through or maybe he doesn't care and he actually, you know, finds homosexual people to be evil. I don't know the man and I don't know what his politics were and so forth, but um, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, I guess. But maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. I'll be curious to read more about him. It's a time period thing, I would say as well. And, and like, that's not, I don't think you, you can necessarily be forgiven for that, but I also think that it's like a product of the time. Yeah. And like, you know, almost any story we read in this time period written by a white guy is going to have this kind of stuff in it. Yeah. And it's like, it just goes to show like how fucked up society has been for such a long time. Well, and clearly we're getting into some tricky white savior territories, perhaps with him being this messiah coming to these other people, the Fremen who, you know, are the natives and maybe he's going to be a messiah for them. That seems kind of tricky. Anyway, we'll, we'll, yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about that more as we actually explore more of the um, 
the book itself and what actually happens. Let's talk more about the Baron though. Like, what did you think about the Baron as far as like his plan and uh, actually everything? I that... think he's a great villain. Um, and and one of the other things I wanted to say about that is is that like sometimes when when I would initially hear that, um, there's certain way like when I'm exposed to certain ideas as being problematic, there are like waves of like my initial reaction and then like my reaction after I've thought about it over time and like some of my initial tendency was to push back about that. It's like, oh, well, why can't the villain be someone who's obese or gay or whatever? Um, and the argument is not that they cannot be that. It's like a historical context thing. It's like if you look on the whole of the genre, more often than not, or more frequently than you would imagine, you start to see this coming up. And it's more about like trends in greater genre going on, which is kind of tough because you have to be kind of well-read and be thinking about this sort of thing to even notice it. Um, so in isolation, it can feel like you're nitpicking and being kind of weird by even highlighting it. But when taken as, as a greater context of the whole, I think it's worth noting. But that's, you know, all of that is to say that in isolation, I actually find this character to be really interesting and 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 um, intimidating as a villain. Um, he is he is repeatedly described as gross which is someone who's overweight uh, myself, like, I, I don't love it. I don't love the sort of equating physical, you know, your physical attributes and not being, you know, sort of classically attractive to being a bad person. But all, but even with that, I still kind of like the character just because he's, I don't know, he's he's very interesting and he, he's, a, he's a shithead and I don't know, man. I find myself still being taken with the character in the way that a good villain can be written, um, even if I sort of bristle at some of the stuff. Yeah. Well, like you said, too, is very confident, confident in yeah. his plan, confident in like the fact that he knows like no matter what goes on, like he's crafted this masterful ruse that's going to trick everyone and there's no way it can go wrong. And and intimidating, like you said, seems powerful, seems yeah. like somebody who uh, uh, at least at this part that is is. Um, kind of unquestioned in, in their authority. Yeah. But I do, I, I feel like we brushed over a character that's really important, which is Jessica. Yeah. And like... Um, which, by the way, before we talk about Jessica, it's kind of odd to me. I mean, we get the same with Paul, but like Jessica, for whatever reason, stands out to me more. Um, kind of odd to have a character whose name is just like Jessica. When you have like some really... I thought about that Like as well. Lido and like, you know, he's like very almost uh, uh, exotic sounding names that are, that are you know, very futuristic sounding. And then you have Paul and Jessica. And I, I wonder why he did that. I wonder if he, if he wanted to make them feel more familiar to us. If that, if that actually gives us a touchstone and makes them feel like someone we could know in real life because they have a more familiar name. Well... I want to talk about Jessica, but there's yeah. another name that I think we should talk about after this, and that's Duncan Idaho. Was this Duncan was the name Idaho, that really threw yeah. me for a loop? I was like, "Whoa, that's a that's an interesting uh, choice for a name there." Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Jessica, I love uh, the way that she's sort of. First of all, I love that she like chose to have Paul over this religion. I love like pushing back against that and showing like how she's like she's clearly a big believer in it and has powers and everything and knows that it's real, but push back against it. And then sort of the way that she dealt with the scene where Paul's putting his hand in the, in the um, square, she knew it had to go down the way that it did. Gumjaba. She had to deal with that. And uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I like, I like her as a mother, but I also like her as like a character who is like 
shown to be pretty pretty formidable and i'm going to be interested to see her role in the story going forward because where we're at currently you know she's experienced and she's the most experienced between herself and paul and yet like there's some weird like power dynamics that are going on right now in their relationship yeah totally agree um and she is a fascinating character her She's like one of the most insightful characters. I mean, Paul is also, but in kind of a slightly different way, but her sort of Benny Gesserit ability to read the truth from people. Um, it's really fascinating. Like, I love the part, the whole, like, we're about to get into the part where, she, like, she learns of the suspicion that has been placed on her as being a potential traitor and the way she sort of susses it all out and, and um, combats it. I don't know. It's just really cool. Definitely love reading her her sections. Let's talk about Duncan Idaho though, yeah. and Thurfer and and Gurney kind of Gurney, as yeah. as a unit. Yeah, yeah. Because they're all sort of like um, Lido's aides. Yeah, um, Gurney Halleck, man, what a what a cool character. He's this he's like the personal trainer of Paul uh, in like combat. Um, he's always kind of ready with a joke, but then he also he's always doing all these quotes, um, which are fascinating, right? And um, so he's like sings and stuff yeah. too and he like breaks out I love very that. cool and this has got to be um it's got to be jason momoa in the new movie right like that I, i'm pretty sure that's him that's gurney you know i don't know for sure if that is him very cool casting <laughs> just i think uh very neat yeah and then you have this mintat and and hoat who's got this theory about um about lady jessica maybe being the traitor and it's interesting that they're all blind to this doctor um as as the real traitor it seems like yui or something um and and no one everyone thinks he, he can't possibly be the traitor because of how much he hates the harkonnens and that like his wife was killed by them in the past um so it's really cleverly set up um we learn that maybe she's not dead the wife and she's actually prisoner and being tortured and so he's trying to sort of free her um even though he knows that he's likely to be double crossed by the harkonnens um, so there's all these layers of double crossing going on. And even the traitor himself does some things that we kind of like, like he, he helps save Paul and, and Lady Jessica, even though he kind of set up yep. the whole situation anyway. So it's like, how much can you forgive him? And then he uses the Duke to try and kill, uh, the Baron, which we're okay. We should probably just, maybe we should read the second part as we get, we're getting into further details, but um, I, I do want to uh, share up a couple of things real quick. I looked it up. Jason Momoa plays Duncan Idaho, actually. Okay. And Josh Brolin plays Gurney. Josh Brolin's Gurney? I thought Josh Brolin was the Duke. He's not the Duke? No, Oscar Isaac. Oh, Oscar Isaac's the Duke. Wow, man. I, I clearly didn't know exactly who's who in this in this group. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I'd be very curious to see these portrayals. Um, are you? Re- I think I want to just read the second chunk here, and then we can just kind of talk about more openly about everything that's going on. Yeah, because I think we're, we're going to get more about like through for Hawat and Gurney and Duncan and everybody in, in the summary and we can yeah. kind of just react to everything. Okay. So Lido, Jessica, and Paul travel to their household to occupy Arakeen, the stronghold on Arrakis, formerly held by House Harkonnen. Lido learns of the dangers involved in harvesting the spice, which is protected by giant sandworms, and negotiates with the planet's native Fremen seeing them as a valuable ally rather than foes. Soon after Atreides' arrival, Harkonnen forces attack, joined by the Emperor's ferocious Sardukar troops in disguise. Leto is betrayed by his personal physician, the Souk doctor Wellington Yui, who delivers a drugged Leto to Baron Vladimir Harkonnen and his twisted mentat Peter de Vries. 
Yue, however, arranges for Jessica and Paul to escape into the desert, where they are presumed dead by the Harkonnens. Yui replaces one of Leto's teeth with a poison gas capsule, hoping Leto can kill the Baron during their encounter. Yui is murdered by DeVries upon delivering Leto, while the Baron narrowly avoids the gas, which instead kills Leto and DeVries. After fleeing into the desert, Paul realizes he has significant powers as a result of the Bene Gesserit breeding scheme, inadvertently caused by Jessica bearing a son and his exposure to high concentrations of spice. In visions, he foresees futures in which he will live among the planet's native Fremen, and is also informed of the addictive qualities of the spice. It is revealed that Jessica is the daughter of Baron Harkonnen, a secret kept from her by the Bene Gesserit. Okay, so that's the last big bombshell we get there at the end. Jessica's the daughter of the Baron Harkonnen. Which means that Paul is also related to the Baron Harkonnen. Right, yeah. That's his, like, grandfather, I guess. So he's also Harkonnen. Yeah, wow. Um, So, again, reminds me of Game of Thrones, right? Like, these inner family politics and stuff. Very, very interesting. I wanted to take a second, too, to just talk about, like, how, you know, there's a lot that we just went through, but so much time is taken in this novel to, like, really flesh out the world. And when we go to, like, the sand... Uh, to the spice mining. There's like a lot that's given. So about... cool. They're flying in this like thopter. Yeah. Um, and, oh my God, so cool. Yeah, they, uh, the Duke is the one who spots the worm. Like it's right. like a worm sign it's called. And he spots the worm sign and he calls it in. And then there's this whole thing where like whoever spots the worm sign gets like extra credits or something. It's extra money um, for doing it. And he like awards it to the people who are working there rather than himself. Um, well, and then, and, you know, the attack happens and they, he gets all of the people out, which is very important to show his character. Yeah, he then, he then saves them. Yeah. And then it shows the yeah. strength of the worm as it's like swallowing them. It's also said, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like if you don't if you don't kill like every section of a worm, it'll just like regrow. Yeah, I think it said it was like some sort of like electric electrostatic like thing that goes all the way down that kills it all at the same time. Because otherwise, yeah, if you like if you blow up or burn or shoot one portion, it'll sort of just fall off and the segment will continue. Yeah, the rest will continue. Yeah, it's fascinating. These are these are some wild creatures and they're incredibly huge but even things like the dinner party that happens when like there's like the banker that's there and the way that like paul's interacting with the banker and like just the political vying that's going on there into just the 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 attack happened so quickly too i you know it kind of crept up on me within the story when basically uh the duke is like backstabbed by ua i mean and and i don't know about you but i I was feeling a lot of affection for the duke like i think he does a great job of making us like him he seems like a good dude he seems honorable and it's like, this guy's going to die. And sure enough, he does. Um, we, it's also been foreshadowed. So we know he's going to die, which creates like a, it's a very tragic. He's a tragic figure because you know he's going to die. And you're learning about how good how like good of a person he seems to be. And you're like, well, he's not long for this world. And then sure enough, he does. Yeah. So I love the explanation of like m- moisture and everything as well, too. Like the suits that still are talked suits, about the way that they called, like recycle. Yeah. The still suits recycle the water for you and keep a lot of the moisture in. And the way that they respect like moisture and like obviously the the nobles seem to have been abusing the system and using up all oh, the water. Oh, the Harkonnens had this whole, this whole thing where you show up at their house and they like pour water on the ground or something and like into these puddles and then like people would come and just sop it up. Um, and it was all it was all just like the waste. The cruelty was the point, you know what I mean? And, and the way that the Harkonnens ruled. And uh, that sounds familiar to me in uh, our political climate. I love that the Fremen like have evolved to the point that like they get a slash and like it immediately like cauterizes itself. Almost oh, yeah. And like, and like seals up and like the spit. You remember the sp- uh, um, I think it's Stilgar. 
or someone like that like spits as a form of affection to show like I'm willing to give you my moisture or something. Yeah, it's form of respect. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was awesome too. Like cool world building this idea because it makes sense. And I also love the detail that the Atreides come from this like water planet. Mm -hmm. And so they like have so much water. And then these people, the people from Arrakis see them as like soft water people mm -hmm. and they haven't had to deal with the, the hardship of not having a lot of right. water on their planet and stuff. Well, you imagine everybody's like dehydrated. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kynes wants to like terraform or do something to like switch the, the habitat of the planet to create this lush environment and everything. Like just so much going on. And, so and many there's like an implication that he knows about some secret store of water or some reason why there's not more water and maybe there could be a way to fix it. And I don't think we got that. We don't have like the truth behind that revealed yet, but yeah, lots of characters seem to have these secrets, which just makes it all more fascinating. So I, I didn't know whether or not this gambit was going to work by uh, the Duke, right? Like this gas tooth. Um, and it's Yui's uh, gambit, I guess, and that he's trying to take out Baron Harkonnen with the Duke. <laughs> um, and so he staged this this thing that comes close to working but doesn't work. And um, I guess it makes sense because, like, he, ultimately he is he is a hated figure, right? Like, he is the betrayer and the traitor. Um, so even though he tried in his own way to, like, at least take out Baron Harkonnen too, it doesn't end up working. So um, yeah. he does do something that I like with the ring, though. He, like, takes the oh, ring yeah. and says, like, I'm going to get this to to Paul and he'll rule and then, like that as he should and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, I think, if, like you said, doing the wrong thing, but having sort of some of the he has his own motivations, yeah. obviously, like he doesn't he doesn't align with our main characters. But it's like he sort of seems like he had some humanity to him where he kind of understood what was going on and wanted to do some of the right things. I don't yeah, know. He's really interesting. He's much more interesting than he would be if he was just a straight up traitor who you just hated because he, you know, his yeah. reasons were like greed. It's like, no, no, no. He's trying to save his wife. He know he like loves the people that he's betraying. So it's tragic. And also he knows what his like what how they're going to think of him historically and we see examples of that in those epigraphs right where like he's known as the traitor and there's like little rhymes about him being a traitor and that's like his legacy so he's kind of tragic in his own way and and that in that way um yeah really fascinating and then i was really surprised that uh peter devries this mintat assassin who was a really cool like scary character i was surprised he was the one who ended up dying from the gas um ends up taking him out um, I don't know. Fascinating. Uh, so it, th this book has had some surprises for me. Yeah, very cool character. And we get a good glimpse of a mentat from him early on and then sort of can understand what Paul is and how he's sort of like secretly been trained as a mentat almost like he doesn't realize it along the way, but has sort of a mentat training. And and it's basically like very logical um, on emotion. They can do things without emotion and um like sort of see through problems in that way but then he also has the training like we've talked about with the bene Gesserit, and he has this like mystical yeah. sort of like attachment to ability to foresee the future seems like yeah, yeah. and so like having the, those two balances and then also that leads us to sort of some of the end stuff that we get where he's realizing that the spice is affecting him and has this like crazy trip this crazy like vision yeah. And all these things are given to us so quickly. And I guarantee this is one of the most important sections in the book <laughs> because it, it's, you know, we're seeing like, doesn't he like see his grandfather or something? And like he's seeing he's seeing the future, he's seeing all these different timelines and possibilities. And 
Um, yeah, you're making me want to go back and reread that section just because you're right. It probably is really important prophecies. Right. And then he comes out of that and he's talking to Jessica and t- telling her all of these things that like he he like he tells her that she's pregnant. Yeah. He, you know, which she just barely knew. And he, yeah, which. Oh, yeah. I forgot to min- that wasn't in this like summary. But yeah, that's another bombshell is that she's she's pregnant currently and no one knew about it. Not even the Duke. Lady Jessica knew about it because of her Benny Gesserit abilities. Mm-hmm. And that's like only the only reason. Uh, so, yeah, he's I'm interested because we've talked many times about these stories where characters get insanely powerful and how that can how that can affect the story and how t- difficult that can be to juggle as a writer. And so I'll be interested to see like how Paul is handled throughout because he seemed in that moment to be extremely powerful mm. and like able to predict everything and and knew all of these details. Like, should we remember she asks him, like, should we go to should we go to the Fremen? Should we trust the Fremen? And he knows he's like, yes, we should. We're going to that's what we're supposed to do. And yeah. How do you deal with a character who can see the future? Uh, that is that is right. an open. Yeah, that's a that's a tough ask in a, in a book. And um, I will be very curious to see how Herbert handles it. Um, I, I think, you know, we've, we've done a pretty good job setting up all the different characters and, and sort of where they're at at the end here. Um, it's an exciting first book. It's basically all about the assassination of the Duke and the collapse of the House of Atreides. Now they're on the run. Uh, Harkonnen has sort of retaken power here. Um, I like it. I think that's a really cool way to end this section. It makes sense. Um, do we want to get into some predictions or are we worried we might touch on knowledge from the old movie? Cause I, I truthfully don't remember anything about it. I really don't either. Yeah. So, I mean, we can, okay. we can talk about it some, I, 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 I okay. I'll, I will admit one thing I do remember. I think okay. at some point Paul rides a worm or controls a worm. He either rides it or controls it. So that and that and that is about as much as I can remember. So you know what I mean, like take that yeah. for what it is. Um, so beyond that, I can I make some predictions here about about the next section we're gonna read. Um, right. What do What do you got? So I mean, obviously he's had this vision of this person who is very important that um, we've seen as Zendaya in the trailer. Also, so that's that's obvious. They're going to they're going to the Fremen. Seems like yeah, the, this Fremen character. Have we met her? Have we met this character yet? No, okay. but I believe it's the one that he had the vision of who called him like Uru something. It's a short four letter word. I can't think of it right now, but I obviously think that they're going to go and become like ingratiated with the uh, with the the native people and, and like sort of learn their ways and like hide with them become like a part of their I'm sure that there'll be some moment where Paul does something to save them or help them in some major way where, where they see him as this messiah obviously which he's predicted in this section already yeah. that's not gonna happen for a while though it's gonna be a lot of a lot of um, him being an outsider and having to win them over I think at first and yeah yeah um, I also think you're you, you touched on the this revelation about them being Harkonnens and his mother and I'm really curious to see where that goes. Like, does that change anything for anybody um, in the way they feel about the Harkonnens? Or does that just make them hate them even more? Hate, hate, hate this uh, Baron? I don't know. I'm very fascinated. Oh, my God. Well, you just you keep bringing up things from the vision. That vision, he literally talks about how, like, all these warring factions and he keeps thinking about all this stuff and he's seeing it from like a third, like a bird's eye perspective and seeing all of the inner workings of all of these people. And yet he, then he thinks of his dad 
being dead and having been killed and he like comes back down to the ground level more and thinks about how like um they're all people they're all just trying to survive and this sort of like kumbaya thing that he's feeling but at the same time is like but they killed my dad and oh that was when he was like he allowed himself to mourn for the first time too and he actually like yeah got teared up about it yeah so that's interesting right because it's if, if you're if you can see the future you do kind of become a character who is somehow above like regular human emotion but the the idea yeah. that he then comes back down and is grounded um i don't know it's interesting right like it, it i'm sure it's something that they'll explore further as we continue to go yeah um i don't know do you have any other do you have any other i think we're gonna get more of the world itself like we're down on the dunes now right we're gonna get arrakis we're gonna learn about the fremen i think this is gonna be a lot of fremen we're gonna learn about these prophecies what exactly they mean moadib right like what they call oh them. let's talk about that also really quickly though too that was a super fascinating the bene gesserit like overarching power has sort of sent these prophecies out to all these planets and all these places that are maybe not as developed as their places so that if these bene gesserit people are ever stranded they can sort of use these these prophecies to say like i maybe i'm you know important and powerful you should treat me as such and then they immediately have status they immediately have like protection in in these worlds and that's so interesting to think about because we're dealing with an area where it seems like they've almost like fabricated prophecies and sent them out everywhere but at the same time like they're going to start coming true like a lot of these prophecies are, are clearly going to be correct so the the religion is real in that way and correct we've seen the power that they have so it's obviously real right yeah yeah it's very fascinating right like if you if you orchestrate the arrival of a messiah and then it happens because you orchestrated it like and but yet the people believe it as a religion like it still holds the cultural power of a real messiah at a certain point right and especially if you're talking about a situation where people have almost magical powers um yeah. which they they seem to almost have it's like self-realizing prophecy stuff right like like you're sending it out and it so happens to come true, but so it, like it seems like it was all along planned that way. I don't know. It's going to be really fascinating, and I, I'm just I'm so taken with this this whole journey so far. Okay, well, I think this is a good part to leave uh, leave our first book here, and we will next week be covering book two, Moadib, where we'll get the middle chunk of Dune. Um, so excited to be on Arrakis and and finally talking about this thing. Um, I will be in Florida. I'm leaving tomorrow. Um, I'm going to be in Florida, uh, seeing you and my brother and, um, trying to be as safe as I can traveling with, with COVID and everything. But, um, what's interesting is that we will be recording our next episode in person together for the first time since before the pandemic began. Um, I'm excited about that. Um, should be, should be kind of an, a unique episode in that sense, just because we don't normally record, yeah. you know, Right We're gonna to sit other. like two feet from each other, staring directly into Always each other's do. eyes into one microphone, and it's gonna it's gonna it's be very intimate. <laughs> yeah, I, it's gonna be interesting. I feel like we'll, we might forget how to podcast because we have to do it in person. Yeah. Right? Hopefully, you join us for that. If you're excited about Dune as a project and and us finally getting to it, let us know in the form of a rating and review. Let us know what you thought of this first episode and what you think of the podcast in general. We'd love hearing that kind of feedback, and especially uh, it helps get the word out for other listeners. And make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. Oh, speaking of, in case you missed our 200th episode, we just opened up our Discord to non-Patreon subscribers. So anybody can join now. You just need to either be in the Council of Inklings, 
um, which is our, our Facebook group where I posted the link in there. Or you can just reach out, um, reach out via direct message to any of our social media platforms, and I will send you the link. Um, and that's just to make sure that the people who are in there are people who actually want to be in there. Um, but yeah, if you do that, we're having fun on there, chatting with some of our, our listeners. Um, I'd like to continue to grow it some more. So we'd love to have you on our discord. Um, just let me know that you are interested and I will send you a link. If you'd like to support the podcast in another way, check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we put out bonus episodes monthly. We're about to record another one, you know, for October eventually. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be Dune. We're going to do the uh, the 80s version of Dune. So look forward to yeah. that. And just for $2 a month, you get those bonus episodes. We have like 40 of them. So check that out. We also just put out um, an extended version of the game we played in our 200th episode where we're guessing first lines from books and lines from the movies that we've covered that sort of stuff so it was a fun kind of a continuation of the game um so if that sounds interesting to you also you're going to want to go on to patreon to, to listen to that um and we wanted to thank ross bugden for the use of our intro and outro music i cannot wait to continue reading i'm going to continue reading tonight and uh next time we record we'll be together so looking forward to that yeah i will be uh on arrakis while i am flying over the country tomorrow spending my my days uh (laughs) spending my time in arrakis um riding sandworms all the good stuff um and until next time keep adapting keep adapting